Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Tamsin Parnell, Research Associate at the University of Warwick in the UK, visiting lecturer at Birmingham City University, and she recently finished her PhD on how identities of Britishness and more were constructed in Brexit-related migration discussions. She's interested in homelessness, media, and political discourses. Welcome to Tamsin and potentially her cat Willow, who may be making an appearance at some point today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. And I'm I'm delighted to have you here because I've been really impressed by your work. So I'm very glad I could smuggle you onto the podcast for the day. (laughs) So look, I want to start out just by asking a question about what discourse is, because I understand this has different meanings depending on what your field is. So in your research where this idea pops up a lot, what does discourse actually refer to? That's a good question. So actually, one of the things around discourse that you said is that it has multiple meanings and it's not just multiple meanings in different fields, but also multiple meanings within linguistics, Mm -hmm. which means that it's a really fuzzy term. It can be hard to know what it means. So I kind of follow a researcher called Burr, Vivian Burr, who you might have heard of before, um, (laughs) who has a really amazing definition of discourse. Um, Basically, a way, a, a kind of use of language or a set of meanings or representations that produce a particular version of the world. And each discourse is a kind of particular version of the world that can depict mental and social worlds from a particular ideological perspective. Um, So a kind of set of meanings that frame the world in a particular social way. So if I understand you correctly, then it's sort of like we're all walking around in our own little discourse bubbles. And in our discourse bubble, we see the world this way and we understand words this way. We understand ideas this way. But then other people might be in their own little bubbles. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess one way of thinking about it is thinking about Brexit. So different Mm -hmm. people have different views of Brexit and what Brexit constitutes and what it means. And so people will kind of perform or talk about Brexit in a different way. And that shows a different kind of discourse of Brexit, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. And so since we're already on the topic, you can tell we boasted research on Brexit because I'm like, all right, let's dive in. (laughs) Um, Okay, so in your research, I understand that you talked about identities of Britishness and Europeanness and maybe non-Europeanness as well. So how does that relate to discourse then and how these identities were constructed? It's a good question. So I'm looking at the way that particular identities are represented in language so thinking about different kind of perceptions of what it means to be British or what it means to be European and the language that is used to describe that by journalists by politicians and by individual citizens as well so I'm looking at the language surrounding how people talk about what it means to be British or European and can you give some examples like what kinds of things are they saying or what does it mean to be British or European or or other So in media and in politicians, there's a really common frame of what Bennett calls the decent Britain. So Mm -hmm. discourses around politeness and British people liking to queue, liking to be really polite, um, kind of... Come and carry on thing. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
what's really interesting is that although that's kind of how journalists and politicians talk about Britishness, when I spoke to individuals, they were kind of talking about how Leave voters or Remain voters were not polite at all, but actually really mm -hmm. discriminatory. So there's this contradictory tension between talking about Britons as being really polite in institutional discourses, but not when you actually talk to individuals about it. That's really interesting. And I'm sure audiences in different countries can also imagine this happening locally, right? So you've got this idea of the media and politicians and institutions talking about the people in one way, yeah. but then it's not the same way as the Neighbours Act. To me, the US always comes to mind because obviously it's always very visible in the English language press, but also mm -hmm. other countries as well. But I'm wondering, what do you think are the implications of this tension in how different groups are actually talked about and perceived? I think it has implications for feelings of belonging. So one thing that I've kind of talked about in my thesis work is if there's a kind of contradiction between the way that politicians talk about what it means to be British and the way that individuals do, are individuals going to have that sense of belonging that they kind of need or the politicians need to create that sense of the public? Um, so I think that there's a problem there around creating a sense of belonging to the nation. And without getting too much into my thesis and kind of giving away all the all the answers, um, my concern around that is that at this point in time, the UK kind of needs a really strong sense of national identity in order to get it through the tensions that it's experiencing with the EU and other countries. Um, but there's a sense that actually this national identity maybe is in crisis with this sense of nobody really agreeing on what it means to be British at this point in time and lots of divisions being talked about in terms of Britain as well. Um, so I think that it has really strong democratic implications for, for the country in terms of the sense of feeling of belonging. That's really interesting, this idea of sort of belongingness and perhaps some kind of solidarity in the face of crises. Yeah. And it's just making me wonder as well, there's that famous idea of imagined communities and the mm -hmm. nation as an imagined community. So that even though we will never, I'm going to go straight out and say, we will never meet every single person <laughs> of a given country that would take a lot of time, maybe in a micro state, we still imagine that they're like us or they belong with us. And there's that sense of solidarity, but what I'm hearing from your research is that not only can we no longer imagine there's really that community, but there's actually multiple communities who are, who are maybe drawn to fight one another or to try and take over one another. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's really prevalent in the UK post-Brexit with this kind of cleavage of leavers and remainers, that there still is a kind of strong identity-related division in the UK between leavers and remainers. I mean, in the interviews that I did with leavers and remainers on an individual level, we had people saying they just completely didn't understand the other perspective and they didn't understand why people were voting in the way they did. They felt that the certain group was either kind of racist or xenophobic on the one hand or elitist on the other hand. And so it feels like there are lots of conflicts within that to do with kind of levels of education, to do with social views towards ethnicity and race that are really coming to the fore through this broader division with the labels that we add of Lever and Remainer. It's it's really interesting. And I found similar themes in in my interviews with, with Levers, for example. But one of the things that sort of gave me a little hope in these interviews, and now I'm just talking about my own research, um, <laughs> is that I found this consistent story of compassion in so that amongst leavers, it wasn't about, oh, 
for example, oh, we hate all these immigrants. Like that, that would be a very strong way of putting it, but that's sort of the way it's portrayed, right? Or like yeah. leavers are spoken about. But instead I heard on quite a number of occasions this idea of, well, it doesn't affect me, but I feel sorry for my person locally. Or it doesn't affect me, but I feel sorry for migrants um, in crisis in Greece, for instance. So there was this idea of actually this this compassion driving a vote to leave, which is perhaps compelling as far as drawing people together, right? So that like there's no sides here that are monsters, which I think can be quite important. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Mm. And actually, I think there's a tendency for Remain voters to sort of see themselves as in, intellectually superior or kind mm. of morally superior. Mm. And yet I found that actually my Remain voters that I was interviewing tended to be more discriminatory towards Leave voters mm. than the other way around. So I, I think there's stereotypes surrounding what it means to be a Leaver and a Remainer that absolutely aren't the case. Um, no, that's really interesting because, I mean, one of the things that that I found as well is that when I spoke with leavers, even earlier on when they weren't quite so resolute in their vote, they yeah. said that one of the things that really entrenched them in their decision to vote leave and later their identity as a leaver was effectively mm-hmm. being abused by Remainers. Uh-huh. And this was consistent. Every single leaver I spoke to said, no, it's because they said that I was stupid or that I was racist or whatever else. I can never be with you if you're being mean to me, basically. It's really interesting how that um converges with with your work on yeah well actually remainers might be a little discriminatory yeah and so when you've got these different tensions it's very hard to imagine these discourse bubbles coming together to create a community exactly exactly and so what actually led you down that path as far as your doctoral research I mean what drew you to it so I was actually kind of drawn towards this research area for a personal reason. I have family in Scotland. I also have family who voted to leave in the referendum. Mm -hmm. And my Scottish side of the family felt after the vote that they wanted Scottish independence, which is Mm -hmm. something they hadn't kind of wanted before. And I just remember thinking to myself, I want to understand A, why people voted leave, and B, why my Scottish members of the family wanted to have independence now. Mm -hmm. And I guess that this was a way of exploring that that level of the family, but at a higher discourse level, because I felt like more people would be in similar situations to me, having their families kind of affected, if not torn apart by this vote, which at the time was a very kind of strong, there are lots of emotions and strong feelings around it. So it was a kind of personal, I want to understand the other perspective and how can I go about doing that in a way that chimes with my research interests as a linguist. So that's how I ended up down that path. No, I think that's really relatable. And this idea of, well, wanting to look at how this division is caused in our family by broader societal divisions is, I think, yeah. really important to a lot of people because there have been, uh, I guess, will continue to be some tense Christmas or New Year <laughs> or what celebration of choice family dinners and get-togethers going forward. Absolutely. And so one of your papers, which I understand is related to your thesis, was called Humiliating and Dividing the Nation. in pro-Brexit press and so what is this idea of humiliation and division and how does it actually appear in the press like why would they do that to us okay so the discourse of humiliation was actually really interesting so what I did I looked at newspaper kind of representations from 2016 to 2019 in my actual thesis but not Mm -hmm. in the paper and I found this shift from a sense of unity being constructed around the time of the referendum to journalists basically saying that Theresa May's government was inept 
and kind of, I guess, encouraging a shift towards a different prime minister with a different Brexit on the agenda. But also that the fact that there was division in the parliament as well was leading the UK to be a national laughingstock, basically. Other countries were laughing at the UK because the UK couldn't get itself together Mm -hmm. enough to achieve Brexit or deliver Brexit. Mm -hmm. And so this discourse of humiliation was very much this idea of the political elites are humiliating us as the ordinary people. The ordinary people want to vote leave and they're delaying Brexit. They are Mm -hmm. doing everything they can to stop a no-deal Brexit. And so this was the kind of main discourse that was coming through there. So there was a frustration over this idea of not getting Brexit done. Yes, exactly. Okay, interesting. And so before I ask about some of your other research, I'm wondering, what can we take away from all of this? I mean, if you're going to fix society, you've got a magic wand, but no, you don't (laughs) have a magic wand, you've got a PhD. What kind of things would you actually do to bring these different discourse bubbles together? Mm -hmm. I think my biggest kind of concern is changing the language used surrounding national identity and changing the language around identity on the political level because I think there's a lot of emotional discourse there's a lot of discourse around conflict and division and I think in some ways that's only reinforcing the senses of division that people are experiencing themselves Mm -hmm. I think like the language that you look at kind of words like deride scorn humiliate are very very emotional And I feel like that's encouraging emotional responses to this kind of political situation as well. And if we think about what's happened with like the deaths of Joe Cox and David Armis, Mm -hmm. this kind of highly emotive, I guess, belligerent language. That is a good word. That's (laughs) a great word. Belligerent. Kind of very highly emotive language is only reinforcing the sense of division as well and I think there needs to be a sort of step down from this type of language and Mm -hmm. there's already campaigns going on with compassion in politics for instance in the UK Mm -hmm. that are trying to change the way that language is being used and after the deaths of Joe Cox and David Armis this was kind of discussed in politics we Mm -hmm. need to kind of lower the tone so to speak in terms of of this violent language Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to have happened because still mm-hmm. looking at the discourse in 2019, it's still prevalent. And Joe Cox passed away, obviously, in, in 2016. So mm-hmm. they're talking about changing the language, but they're not actually changing the language. And so that's what needs to, to change, in my opinion. And so just for the non-UK listeners, the two politicians that Tanzan is mentioning were both essentially murdered, assassinated, variously stabbed as a result of their political advocacy and or beliefs. So Joe Cox was, for example, a Remainer and she was murdered by a constituent. It was it was a horror, an absolute horror. And also has some parallels with what's happened in the US in recent times with Nancy Pelosi's husband obviously being attacked. And I mean perhaps we can see the same kinds of discourses about division and conflict and victory and trying to win in that kind of situation. And so what I'm hearing from you then is this idea of that when we have these like really strong discourses of emotion and conflict in politics and coming from our media, coming from our institutions, then things are going to keep basically boiling higher and higher and higher and violence becomes almost, can I say inevitable? (laughs) Yeah, naturalised, I think, is a kind of response to to this kind of anguish that people are experiencing in, in political discourses. Uh, I think you see kind of with Suella Braverman talking about the invasion of migrants as well, mm-hmm. the kind of immediately as soon as she kind of comes in to, to talk about why there are problems at, at the migrant centres at the moment. 
this language, this invasion is encouraging us to, to see or to think that that we are being deprived of something or that we're kind of threatened and the natural response to that, to, to feeling threatened is, is to try and defend yourself. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we see what's happened with petrol bombs being thrown at a migrant centre in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I believe, a direct relation between this kind of language that's being used and the actions that are taking place. Absolutely. And, and can we take a moment to talk about the discourses of good migrants and bad migrants? Yes. Because as you were saying this about how migrants are being spoken about in the UK, it really struck me how migrants are spoken about locally in Brussels in the English language media because yeah. my French is terrible. <laughs> so, so, for example, this past couple of weeks there's been a lot of articles about migrant centres in Brussels not providing for migrants, essentially, and, and refugees, and specifically mostly Ukrainian refugees, right? Because they're like, all right, well, there's not enough beds. You've got hundreds of, of families with children sleeping outside or sleeping rough because the asylum centres aren't stepping up. And there's obviously a huge difference between this idea of sort of the good migrant who is deserving and the, um, the strong inverted commas, the bad migrants of the, the so-called migration crisis, even though, like, I mean, I don't know whether there's actually any differences in terms of who is actually using these asylum and migration centres. Yeah. And so do you see similar things playing out in the UK? Yes, although I actually am just about to publish a paper on this. The government in talking about migration, so I was analysing policy documents around migration, and I found that there is definitely a distinction. So when the UK government is talking about non-EU migrants, mm-hmm. that is often framed as a threat. So something mm-hmm. that... These Australians, to... we're, we're everywhere. You know? <laughs> Get the Australians exactly. out of the UK. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so they're definitely framed as a kind of threat that requires a naval or military response. Mm-hmm. And this is very much part of what I've called, like termed, I suppose, a political intimacy discourse. Mm-hmm. So it's actually part of the UK saying to the EU, actually, we really work, want to work with you on defence. Mm-hmm. And so migrants are kind of made this secondary area, or sort of reduced to statistics, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But then actually, when you look at discourses around the good migrants as well, I did this really close linguistic analysis of Theresa May talking about welcoming French and Italian migrants to the UK. And there's a real sense that these migrants are framed as kind of economic contributors to the mm-hmm. UK. So they are paying money, they are paying money, and that's a good thing, but they're still kind of through language positioned as separate from the, the national community. So you have us, and then you have them, even though they are good migrants and they're contributing mm-hmm. and that's what they should be doing, they're still separated through language from the national community. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes even when you have these discourses of the good migrant, if you look really closely at the language that's being used in the grammar, you see that actually they're still being excluded. It makes sense. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to talk about Australians. I feel like as an Australian, it's going to be less inflammatory than <laughs> so the, the other categories of non-EU yeah. migrants which, which pop up, right? Um, and so you can have this idea of, well, you know, you might have been in the UK for 20 years, 30 years, but you're still Australian, like you're still not one of these Britons that you were talking about. And so I'm wondering as well, is that why we sort of see this reaction in terms of being an expat, right, as opposed to a migrant as a reaction to, well, I might not be one of you, but I'm an expat, which makes me a good migrant, so I'm allowed to be here. And so it's almost a reactionary discourse about the self. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a real tendency in the UK to refer to 
UK migrants as expats, as though they're a different type of or different group of migrants from migrants that are coming to the UK. I think that language, that that word expat is definitely a way of softening the force of the idea of being a migrant. Yeah. And again, I guess it's it's about naturalizing the idea that the UK can send people out, but it it doesn't want people coming in. Just quite the interesting take. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I stubbornly refer to myself as a migrant nowadays. I'm like, all right, I'm going to have some solidarity with the bad yeah. migrants. All right, but let's migrate away from migration. Then. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I know you've also done a, a little work on health messages during yeah. COVID-19, so something a little bit different. So yeah. what does that actually entail? So it was part of a broader project called Coronavirus Discourses, led by Svenja Adolfs at the University of Nottingham. Mm-hmm. And it's looking at the way that the public responds to messages around or public health messages around COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So we were looking at how members of the public through a survey responded to messages from public health bodies around. Sorry, that's my cat. <laughs> well, I did say that Willow might be joining us. Yeah. So we have a we have a special guest. <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, we were looking at how they responded to adverts or posters that contained public health messages. So one example was in the UK. The I believe it was the NHS, but it might have been public health body had adverts saying, "Look them in the eyes and tell them that you are not breaking the rules." And so intense, very intense, and very kind of. The, the way that we had responses, the kind of public responses to that was this is scaremongering. Mm-hmm. This is trying to make us feel guilty. And mm-hmm. so what we tried to do with that research was advise public health bodies in the UK about the effective messages and the messages that weren't landing with the public, basically. And we found that this particular kind of guilt guilt laden response was a message that was just not landing with the public. They were not mm-hmm. happy with this type of response and so we went we made a toolkit of kind of ways to respond to public health messages or ways to produce public health messages so that the public health bodies could use that in case of another kind of health threat basically mm. so as opposed to just publicly shaming people yes <laughs> a well-known helpful strategy for making everyone feel good and compliant, I know. right right How funny <laughs> okay so like, I just want to bring this back again then, because I mean, earlier when we were talking about Brexit, you said that part of the driver for your research was wanting to help understand what was happening with divisions in your own family and taking that up. And so we talked a bit about how there's these ideas of compassion and toning down discourse at the media and institutional level to help resolve things on a societal level. Can you make any suggestions for what we can do as individuals to actually tone things down with either you know our families and friends or perhaps for mediators people that they're working with and then trying to bring different groups of people together I think it's about being reflective of the language that you're using as well and that's something that I've tried to encourage with my participants in my interviews that I did for my thesis to reflect on the language surrounding the way that you define yourself and the way that you define other people Mm -hmm. and I think that sometimes we find that we we're using language or we've got biases that we're not necessarily acknowledging and Mm -hmm. so by encouraging people to think critically about the language that they're using sometimes that kind of points them to actually I have this bias and I've been using language in this way and so one thing that I've been trying to do is kind of talk to people and say have you thought about 
how you define yourself? Have you thought about how you think or talk about other people? Just as a kind of open question. And I found that that just people to think about actually how am I fitting into this problem? How am I part of this problem? And how might I change that or not? So I think it's, I guess it's about being more self-reflective, thinking about how we might be using language that contributes to this particular sense of division. And I think we all do it. I mean, Mm. when I started out in my research, I had a strong idea of what I thought a leave voter was. Mm. And through the interviews that I've done with leave voters, I've completely challenged those biases. So I think another thing is encountering people that have got different views. Mm-hmm. And actually talking to them about those views rather than making assumptions about why they're voting in a particular way. And I'm sure you found the same thing in your research doing interviews that you might have had preconceptions about what a lead voter is interested in or a remain voter is interested in. And perhaps they've had different opinions to that when you've interviewed them. And I think actually as a linguist, that's something that we need to do more because there's a tendency for linguists to rally against bad language like bad discourses not bad language um, both. <laughs> why not both yeah yeah <laughs> and but then not talk to people and so you don't get the nuance of why people might be using exclusionary discourses it doesn't mean that they're acceptable but mm. you don't get the nuances of what is kind of underpinning those you, that use like fear and things like that um so I think it's important to talk to real people and, and find out why why they're using language in that way so moving then from don't talk like that to why are you talking like that? Yes, exactly. Okay, great. All right. Well, I think there's some fantastic recommendations. You know, you've got the <laughs> self-reflection, how do I define myself? Then how do I talk to other people? Or how do I define them? And then, yeah, moving away to why do other people talk in this way? So that's a nice little packet you've given us of some recommendations. <laughs> so thank you very much. So look, Tamsin and Willow the Cat, thank you so much for joining me today. And for those interested in learning more about your work, Tamsin, because I don't think Willow has social media, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at at Tamsin Parnell. Fantastic. Great. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and hearing about your research and your knowledge. And for everybody else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.